You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Massimo Pigliucci, who is a professor at City College in New York. He's also the author of multiple books. There's one called Making Sense of Evolution, also Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life, and most recently, How to Be a Stoic Using Philosophy in Modern Life. And also, you currently are hosting a podcast called Stoic Meditation. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Welcome, Massimo. Thanks for having me. Now, Massimo, when I found out that you had a PhD in biology and a PhD in philosophy, and that you wrote on both these topics seamlessly, I thought, this is somebody that I've got to get on the show. And when I was digging into your work, you mentioned, you talk about sci-fi. And, you know, it, it kind of amazed me that I'm this old and I hadn't heard this term. I hadn't thought of this term because this is just... <laughs> This is just brilliant, right? I mean, because when we think back to what the Greek philosophers were doing, you know, they, they called it natural philosophy. No one uses that term anymore. And we've seen kind of a fragmentation. We've seen a, a split into the folks that are claimed to be scientists and then these other eccentric folks who claim to be philosophers. But I think that for many people, those are completely different realms. But I think that you argue that philosophy is kind of like prose, right? You know, you can't avoid doing it, but <laughs> That's right. that doesn't mean that you do it well. <laughs> so, yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, so maybe, you know, so we can start off by, I mean, there's so many directions we can go, but you know, maybe start off by, we hear this term, follow the science, right? All the time. It's sort of become a meme here. Everybody's saying it. And, and it's almost as if science can not only answer questions about how the world works, but science is a source of of normativity, right? I think people are embarrassed in many ways, especially educated people are, are embarrassed to talk explicitly about normativity because they're a little unsure about where it might come from. And they're unsure about, you know, anything which is not uh, scientific. And so science has become the place where we go to find pretty much everything, including how to live our lives. And I think you, you would argue that, well, you know, science as we understand it is actually inadequate to the task. Yeah, science as we understand it is in fact a uh, particular branch of knowledge or understanding. You mentioned the word sci-fi, which doesn't stand for science fiction, but for science and philosophy. The old term used to be scientia, the, the Latin word, which is similar actually in, in understanding to the uh, modern words for science in, uh, for instance, the German language. In English, science means something very specific. It means natural science, usually, or at least, or, or a most natural and social science. But it doesn't include other kinds of understanding or other kinds of knowledge. On the other hand, both in German and in Latin, and, and certainly if we go back in time to the Greeks and Romans, there was no distinction between different kinds of reason and fact-based knowledge. And so what we would today call philosophy was the most comprehensive term, a branch of which was natural philosophy. 
which we call science. And so if science is a branch of philosophy that tells you right there, then no, the two are not distinct, uh, not, not in uh, anywhere near the way they are treated today, unfortunately. And I do think it's unfortunate because, so you, you mentioned, for instance, normativity. Is, there's no way we're going to get normativity out of science because science is about empirical facts and empirical facts by themselves do not get you normativity don't get they don't get you you know values they don't get you what you should be caring about for instance it is a scientific fact that smoking is is bad for your health now naively one would say well, therefore, see, there's an example where science is normative. It tells you not to smoke. But that's not true because there is an unstated assumption. If I care about my, my health, you know, my long-term health, then I shouldn't smoke. But science doesn't tell me why I should care for my long health. That's up to me. What if I decide that, you know, actually a short life with a lot of smoking sounds good to me, then that's my choice, which will derive from other kinds of considerations, not empirical ones. It derives from considerations that have to do with values, both personal values, societal values, etc. So normativity better be informed by science. You know, the best because having the, the best facts available, the best understanding available of the facts certainly is uh, important in order to make our decisions. But the decisions by them, but the fact by themselves don't actually make a decision. So the two are, in fact, interconnected and yet distinct, which is why in Answers for Aristotle, I use the word sci-fi to signify that really science and philosophy need to work together in order to give us the best understanding of not only the world as it as it is and as it works but also how we should behave and you know what we should do about our lives so it's really unfortunate that since the beginning of the 20th century at least uh and arguably much more so after world war ii Science and philosophy have sort of taken diverging uh, paths. And to some extent, that's inevitable because modern academic disciplines, of course, are more and more specialized. And that's true both for the humanities and for the sciences. So it's, it's obvious that uh, if you want to make progress in, let's say, physics or evolutionary biology or whatever it is, you, you're not going to be able to spend a lot of time talking to the philosophers and vice versa. If you want to make progress in your philosophical understandings of whatever you're interested in, uh, then you can't really spend too much time paying attention to the science. But it is an unfortunate situation, and we should think of it as unfortunate and as to be remedied, not as a somehow natural way of proceeding, or even, or even worse, the best way of proceeding. Well, I mean, I was wondering if you could speculate as to why it is that people can make that step so casually and so almost unthinkingly. Is it because we, we kind of make assumptions that we all share some common normativity, right? For instance, I mean, utilitarianism is, I think, universally accepted among a, a certain group of educated people. So if something seems to be, you know, good for the greatest number, then it sort of is assumed to be, you know, an objective worth pursuing or health is sort of, you know, considered to be something which is universally desirable. And so if it if science seems to imply that it's good for your physical or mental health uh, in some way, then it's automatically assumed to be worth pursuing. Or economists, when they talk among themselves, if if something is increasing GNP, it's almost uh, 
must be obviously good, right? So, so you know, all these different communities seem to have, right. you know, their own kind of implied normativity. But I think when you try to separate them out and argue them independently because they require different criteria, that's sort of when, you know, the conversation breaks down. Are people less comfortable making normative arguments among particularly in kind of educated university environments? I think that's true. It's it's. I, I've noticed an attitude, uh, even among my own students, actually, uh, along the lines of, well, you know, who are we to make decisions for other people? Who are we to tell other people that they're wrong or or other cu cultures that they're wrong about something? And so there, there's kind of a slide into essentially moral relativism, which I think is very pernicious. Um, you know, I'm sorry if it upsets people uh, if I go around saying, let's say, that a culture that practices uh, uh, genital mutilation of young girls is problematic, but I think it is. And I think I have good reasons and arguments and empirical evidence for why that thing is problematic. I mean, and vice versa, of course, cultures outside of my own, uh, you know, people outside of my culture would have no basis to criticize what I do or what people that look like me uh, do or speak like me do, right? Uh, so, and, and that would mean that there is no, not going to be any constructive dialogue, any progress, any, you know, criticism is, is uh, the basis of how we make progress on, on, on things. So, even when people say, yeah, I don't think there is a moral basis for anything, or I don't think normativity is a sound idea, they actually don't live that way. They don't, they don't really believe, seem to believe this, because as soon as somebody does something to them that they consider to be wrong, they start going up in arms and say, hey, that's immoral, unethical, blah, 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 right? I'm going to sue the hell out of you and you know, that sort of stuff. But let's, let's uh, take a look at one or two of the examples you brought up. Like, for instance, yeah, it is often assumed that utilitarianism is kind of a default uh, ethical philosophy that most people have. But that's empirically not true. It's much more complicated than that. First of all, most people don't even know what utilitarianism is, right? Um, they don't, they don't, they, they just heard some slogan, some saying, saying, oh yeah, the, the, the most good for the most people. Yeah, sure. Whatever that means. How do you cash that out in, in practical terms in any particular circumstance? But also, uh, if, even if you are in fact a utilitarian by default, I would say, I would argue that being anything by default is not a good idea. I mean, have you thought about why utilitarianism is a, is a good way to proceed? You know, are there problems with utilitarianism? It turns out there are. You know, you might want to be aware that that isn't uh, necessarily the best way to proceed. And in fact, a lot of people we know empirically do not are not completely utilitarian. They sometimes behave like utilitarians, but sometimes they don't. For instance, if you live in a society like the United States or most uh, Western countries, where the society at large works on the basis of a constitution and that constitution has built in a respect for minorities, for the rights of minorities, that means you're not a utilitarian. That means you're, there is a component of deontology there. There is a component of, no, there are certain rules that we're not going to be doing without, regardless of how much more happy the majority of people is. If it turns out the majority of people are very happy if we start lynching minorities, for instance, I'm sorry, that's not the way to go. And we don't go that way, usually. <laughs> we don't allow people to go that way. That means we're not utilitarian, or at least not purely utilitarian, right? There, there's always a component of 
deontology, that is a rule-based ethical reasoning. Uh, so, so it gets really complicated. Let's also talk about the, your second example, health. Sure, other things being equal, I would say, you know, health is a positive, it's a good. But what do we mean by health? I mean, health is actually a single a construct, a complex construct that depends and is affected by a lot of things. And we very often do engage in trade-offs in things. We, we engage in activities that might impair our health because we think it's worth it. From, from well, plus, the, I mean, our, our view of health has implied normativity, right? I, I love when I see ads when they say, you know, they'll, they're going to cure baldness. <laughs> I right. love that. I mean, th so what if I like to be so bald? What, what exactly are we curing here? Exactly. Right? What I if mean, I like to be bald? When is that an illness? I didn't know that was an illness. That's right. Uh, so you know, I like to look like Patrick Patrick Stewart. It's fine with me. So I don't I don't see anything to cure there. But even when we are talking about you know sort of a, a general concept of health that we might think people agree on, turns out that then people are willing nevertheless to engage in all sorts of activities that they know will undermine or potentially imperil their, their health. For instance, driving a car. Driving a car is a fairly dangerous thing to do. And yet, you know, because the, the likelihood of an accident, fatal or not, is actually fairly high. And yet we do it all the time. Why? Because we want to go on vacation, because we need to get to the, to the grocery store, because we need to get to work. There are some, I mean, I, I talked about the example of smoking before, but drinking, we have a pretty good idea now that drinking is actually never good for you. You know, there used to be a time when people would say, oh, a glass of wine a day, it's actually good for your Bullshit. Turns out it's really not good, or at least overall, it isn't that good. But it's one of the pleasures of life for millions of people. And so millions of people, it's not like they don't know that it's bad for them. They just say, okay, well, over the, the, the period of my lifetime, I'm okay. You know, having a slightly lower health, you know, and uh, so long as I can have certain pleasures. So it's not that obvious. And some people, of course, will make those trade-offs. Other people will not make those trade-offs. So even such a apparently obvious situations like, well, everybody wants to be healthy. Uh, it turns out that that's not true. It depends on what kinds of trade-offs one has to do in order to be healthy. So that's the kind of things that require, again, both, I think, a philosophical approach and a scientific one. You want the science, the best science available, because you want the best available facts. Is it really the case that Caffeine is good for me or bad for me, or alcohol is good for me or bad for me. I want to know. I need the facts. But the facts by themselves will not tell me what to do. That comes out of my ability to reflect not only on the facts as I understand them, but also on my priorities, on my values, on, on, on what I want to do in life, and so on and so forth. And that's philosophy. That's not science. It doesn't, it doesn't come out of the sciences. Well, science has done quite a bit to figure out perhaps the origins of our moral sentiments. They've explored maybe even the functionality, if we think about it in an evolutionary model, of our, our moral sentiments. So a lot of people would argue that science has figured out what we ought to do. I actually have a friend who's very intelligent economist, and he gets very upset about things and has a great deal to say about what people should or shouldn't do. And when I inquire as to you know why exactly he feels that way, well, he talks about his evolutionary purpose and talks about his brain and talks about his hormones and so forth. And, and it's a fundamentally different interpretation of, of the word why. 
you you've seen this and you wrote about it in your book about how you know many scientists who explore both neuroscience and uh, evolutionary theory are helping us to understand more about kind of where morality might come from in a scientific way but then i think they mistake that for saying that it can somehow offer us insight into how we ought to live why do you suppose people make that leap or you know even very very intelligent people is it because they're just so immersed in science that they you know they haven't read hume or you know that they haven't encountered philosophy in any way any formal explicit philosophy how do you explain that sort of intellectual phenomenon yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there are probably multiple reasons, one of which certainly is that a lot of scientists, for a number of reasons, don't seem to have a high opinion of philosophy. And so regard philosophy as the, the quintessential waste of time and all that sort of stuff, which in my mind, every time that I talk to a scientist that does have that attitude, unfortunately, not every scientist have, has that attitude. A lot of scientists have actually quite a bit of respect for philosophy. But every time that I talk to a scientist who does have that, that attitude, turns out that he's fairly ignorant of philosophy, and therefore he's literally talking about something that he knows nothing about. But Let's go back to the major, this idea that, okay, if I'm an evolutionary biologist and I provide you an, uh, with a explanation for where morality comes from, or if I'm a neuroscientist and I provide you with nice pictures of what happens to your brain when you engage in moral thinking, somehow that is the answer to any question you could possibly ask about morality. I mean, that's a really fundamental and I would say surprising mistake. For one thing, because almost any phenomenon has multiple levels of description and explanation. Let's take moral thinking, for instance. I certainly want to have an evolutionary story there. I want to know where our moral instincts came from, right? But that in and of itself doesn't tell me in anything about how my brain actually works, works out when I'm thinking in terms of in ethical terms, in moral terms. So then I need a neuroscientist. But the neuroscientist can tell me which parts of the brain are involved in moral thinking. He cannot tell me anything about why those parts of the brain evolved in that particular way. That's the evolutionary biologist. And neither one of those two, neither the evolutionary biologist nor the neuroscientist, can actually tell me if I should think that way, regardless of the fact that I do. So now this is this appears to be, you're right, appears to be pretty difficult to understand when it comes to morality, but let's, let's use a different example. And I think it will be very clear just how silly that kind of position that you described actually is. Imagine that instead of thinking about, uh, that, that talking about morality, we're talking about mathematics, right? So the evolutionary biologist would say, well, our interest in our ability to think mathematically probably resulted from natural selection and uh, the need for counting things and for, for figuring out things spatially. Great, but that doesn't tell you how the brain works when you think mathematically. Now you go to the neuroscientist and the neuroscientist is going to be able to show you, well, you know, these areas of the brain are going to be lit on when, uh, when you're thinking about mathematical problems. Right, but can you actually read in that map of the brain, can you actually read the answer to the Pythagorean problem? To you can't. You'll have to ask a mathematician for that, right? So the, the neuroscientist can tell you how your brain works and is capable of engaging in mathematical thinking. The evolutionary biologist might be able to tell you a good story about why we evolved the ability to think mathematically, but it is the mathematician that is going to tell you whether you actually got the proof of the theorem correct or not. 
Neither the neuroscientists nor the evolutionary biologists will have a clue about whether that is, is the case or not. So similarly with morality, yes, definitely evolutionary biology is going to tell us a story about where a sense of morality came from in the first place. Yes, the neuroscientist is going to tell us how our brain engages in moral thinking, but it is the philosopher that is going to tell you whether that moral thinking is actually sound or not, because that's not a neuroscientific or an evolutionary biological question. It is a, it's a philosophical one. Well, so the distinction between philosophy and science, I didn't mean to suggest, was identical to the distinction between positive and normative, because philosophy also includes other things like causation, understanding causation. And so whenever a scientist makes any kind of causal claim or an historian or a, an evolutionary theorist, they're essentially engaging in philosophy, right? If that's the case, then it also means that people who are not as steeped in that discipline perhaps have the skills they need to evaluate that argument, right? So I'm, I'm also a lawyer and, and you know that courts have the ability to kind of do a Daubert judgment on some kind of scientific argument, right? And so a lot of people wonder, well, how can a judge who is steeped in the law, who has no scientific background whatsoever, how can they be in a position to evaluate whether or not a scientific claim has merits or, or whether or not a scientific discipline right, or a discipline that claims to be scientific is indeed actually worthy of, of the respect that you, know, you would normally give to a scientific discipline? Can you, as, as a fairly good philosopher, oftentimes do a better job of evaluating causal arguments in specialized domains, perhaps better than somebody who's deeply steeped in that specialized domain? Can you be an expert in evaluating, say, causal arguments or normative arguments, even if they're based deeply on certain scientific inputs? Yeah, that's a good question. I would put it slightly differently. I would say, uh, look, if you're a scientist, you will make causal claims. You would say this causes that, or I have reasons to think on the basis of these experiments or observations that this causes that. But you will not have actually an evaluation of what it means to be a causal connection between two things. You use the word causality as a black box. You, you have no idea what actually is inside of the box. You just say, I'm going to use it for my purposes. It's a tool, basically, but I don't know what's inside the tool. Now, that's fair enough. That is not a problem. You know, we all use tools without knowing how to be, build the tool or what's inside the tool, right? I'm using, for instance, right now to talk to you, a MacBook Air. I have no idea how it works inside. If you open it up, for me, that would be all Greek, right? And yet I'm using it fairly efficiently. I mean, I know, probably understand it. But I have no idea. For me, that is a, a black box. And it's fine that way because we, we cannot possibly expect everyone to develop expertise at all levels in, in all sorts of things. It's just not, it's not feasible. It's, it's just not going to happen, right? However, if that is the case, then there is no basis for the scientist to turn around and sort of dismiss the philosopher because he spends time thinking about the nature of causality. It's a very good question, and it's a question that at least occasionally the scientist should pose himself, right? It's like, wait, you're using this tool all the time. Are you not curious at all what that tool might be made of, how to, that might work? You know, at least once in a while, you want to talk to somebody who actually knows a little bit more about that tool and perhaps also how to use it more properly 
than you're doing. So, for instance, in philosophy, there are different conceptions of causality. And it turns out that different concepts of causality have different applications in real world and as well as scientific applications. Sometimes I do run into scientific papers that use the word causality ambiguously, meaning that it's not clear which sense of the word they're actually using, or the word information, for instance, which is another one that scientists use all the time. Well, you know, it does actually make a difference if you use meaning A or meaning B of terms like information, causality, and so on and so forth. And so from time to time, it might be a good idea to stop and think about it and perhaps engage with people who actually spend uh, a significant amount of their time thinking about these kinds of things. So on the one end, it is perfectly reasonable for a scientist to use conceptual tools and take them for granted, meaning using them as tools. But then is it is unreasonable for that scientist to turn around and say, oh, I don't care about you know what these people are saying over here. It doesn't matter. It's not, it doesn't, doesn't affect me. It's irrelevant or, or it's a silly waste of time or something like that. It's like, no, it's a different kind of question. There are different tools to answer that kind of question or to probe into that kind of question. I mean, uh, Daniel Dennett, who is a prominent philosopher, once put it interestingly in, in a book that is entitled Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which came out a number of years ago. And it's, it's a really, I, I recommend that book still, still today. He said that there is no such a thing as philosophy-free science that is only science that has philosophical baggage that it's unexamined. In other words, every time scientists do something or claim make a claim of some sort, they actually are bringing already a lot of philosophical baggage on board, such as concepts like causality, for instance, but also concepts like determinism or concepts like, you know, existence and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, there's, you know, there, there's all sorts of metaphysical and epistemic assumptions, epistemological assumptions that scientists make all the time that are necessary to do their job. And those assumptions are exactly the kinds of things that are of interest to philosophers. And to me, both levels of analysis are interesting, the scientific one and the philosophical one. And I see no reason why one camp should tell the other that they're wasting their time or that they're not doing anything you know, useful or valuable. So, I mean, if we go back to the ancient Greeks, I think it probably would be possible to be a citizen philosopher and, and a citizen scientist. The extent of scientific knowledge was probably learnable by a person, you know, in, in a shorter time than it was in a later period. But, you know, today it's impossible to be really a citizen scientist Perhaps you can still be a citizen philosopher, but, you know, being a citizen scientist is, is almost impossible. And so during the recent kind of pandemic, we've heard people say, you know, trust the science, follow the science. And, and in a way, that's kind of an act of faith, right? So it's an act of faith that the institutions of science are generating the, the sensible conclusions and the sensible ideas. But then there's this whole movement of people who say, do your own research, do your own science. And... I teach uh, MBAs for the most part, and I teach them statistics, and I teach them a whole bunch of other things. And, and what I'm doing is I'm teaching them to do their own research. I'm teaching them to read, understand, interpret scientific journals, to evaluate the merits of different claims, right? When someone's presenting you with a proposal and a, and a study, you have to learn how to pick it apart and, and so forth. But is that something that's reasonable or realistic for people to be able to do, given how specialized so many of these 
disciplines are. Does it even make sense for an ordinary person to, say, comment on the implications or conclusions of kind of professional scientists in, in an area like epidemiology? Right. <laughs> or, um, no, I don't, I don't think it does. Uh, I don't think it does, not only for the, for the regular person, but even for a scientist from a different field. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. an evolutionary biologist, not an epidemiologist, and I'm not going to comment on what epidemiologists say because that's their business. That's their expertise. And I'm not an expert, even though I'm a biologist, I'm not an expert in epidemiology. So I would stay away and, and just see what the experts are telling me. So you put it in terms of faith, I would put it in terms of trust, which then there is a difference there, right? Uh, so faith, at least in some understandings of the word, is blind, as in religious faith. It's like, Oh, I, I just believe, period. I decided that I'm going to believe, you know, and that's it. Trust, on the other hand, needs to be earned. And and you can lose people's trust if you don't deliver what you promised. And so I think that trust is is more complex and more reasonable than faith in, in this case. But nevertheless, yeah, all those people that do their own research, uh, you know, that you've probably seen this cartoon uh, of, of a tombstone and when the tombstone says he did his own research. I mean, you're, you're probably going to end up in a bad place if you do your own research on all sorts of things. We don't do that. If you think about it, we don't do that on almost anything. Right. So how many people do their own research on the airplane that they're going to take? to go home and visit their parents? How many people are gonna do their research on the engineering of the bridge that they're gonna drive on? Or the car that they're driving for that matter? And, and so on and so forth, right? I mean, we just don't do that. We, we trust the engineers. We trust the, the pilots. Uh, we trust all sorts of people. We have to, because there is no way that each one of us can develop even close to the necessary expertise that would be necessary to evaluate every claim. The question, therefore, I think the more reasonable question is, well, how do I determine who to trust and who not to trust? Because if I cannot do my own research, then I have to have some criteria on the basis of which to trust certain people and not others, to trust certain sources and not others, right? And as it turns out, surprise, surprise, philosophers have thought about this for quite a bit. Uh, and uh, on the basis both of empirical evidence that comes out of psychology and sociology, for instance, but also on the basis of what do we mean by trust? What criteria can we actually deploy in order to trust somebody? And some of this is pretty straightforward. And if you think about it, we actually do it without even reflecting on it automatically. Let's say, for instance, that you, your car has a problem. Where do you go? Your priest or your mechanic? Presumably, you're going to bring it to a mechanic, unless your priest happens to be a mechanic as well. Right? Well, why? Well, because you have a reasonable understanding that priests don't do car mechanics. Right? They don't, they're not expert in that area. And you have a reasonable understanding that car mechanics is, is what they do. Okay, fine. But then why do you trust that particular mechanic as opposed to another mechanic? Well, there's a number of things you can do, right? For one thing, you can actually check on his record, right? You can call the Better Business Bureau, for instance, and see if there is a lot of complaints about that guy. You can check if he actually has a license as a mechanic, if it's, you know, state-approved license as a mechanic. You can also look at the experience of yours, and of other people, right? So have you brought that the car to the mechanic before? Did it fix it? Because, you know, if it has a good record of fixing the car, then it makes sense for you to keep trusting him. But the moment in which he doesn't fix the car, 
repeatedly, then it might be time to look for another mechanic. So these same criteria can be used when it comes to other kinds of experts. So you see this guy on television that claims to be an expert on vaccines. Great. Well, if it's important enough for you, because this does require some research, right? Not research of the first kind that we were talking about, research directly into vaccines, but some research about whether to trust that person. So if it is important enough for you, then you might want to do some research. You know, look him up. Does this guy actually have a degree in you know, epidemiology or is it, is it biology or virology or something like that? Or is he actually, uh, you know, from a completely different uh, field? Does he have a record of getting things right in the past? Does he have a degree from an accredited university? Is he a member of accredited professional organization? And so on and so forth, right? So the more of those boxes you check, the more you can trust that person and then say, hey, now always, of course, with the caveat that even if somebody is in fact an expert, a legitimate expert who knows what he's talking about, who has a good track record, etc., they can still get things wrong, right? Your mechanic could be the best mechanic in the world, but I guarantee you from time to time, he will get a car that he cannot fix, that he's not able to fix because or a number of reasons, because he's a human being and he's limited and there, there are only certain things that he can do and, and so on and so forth. So that I think is a far better approach to, you know, should I trust this guy or should I trust this other guy rather than saying, no, I'm going to do my research. I mean, I have actually friends and relatives who tell me, oh, yeah, I, I want to go on, you know, and, and check the paper, the original paper in the scientific paper that shows that the vaccine works. It's like, first of all, it's not a paper. It's tens or sometimes hundreds of papers. So so now we're talking about a significant amount of time that you have to spend just to download the damn things, let alone read them, right? Second of all, what's your ability to actually evaluate those papers? And so I have one particular person in mind, and uh, she told me, well, you know, at, at university I took one course in statistics. I said, that's it? Since because 20 years ago you took one course in statistics, you think that you that's actually, more, that's, you know, it's more than 99% of the population. <laughs> so correct. One that class, is right? more than 99% of the population. <laughs> and yet it's woefully in, 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 insufficient for that, for that, that kind of task. Right. right? No, I'm sorry. That's just not going to give you enough to figure out whether vaccines work. So you cannot do it that way. It, in a sense, I think it's hubris. The notion that, oh, I can do my own research, I'll just go to on Google and figure it out. It's a really interesting example of hubris. And it's very dangerous example of hubris because you can make the wrong decision and uh, end up in the hospital or at the, at the cemetery. I think you're making the point that you do have to do your research, right? So if you're surrounded by Dr. Oz and, and all every day you turn on the TV, see Dr. Oz and he's telling you to take this little green pill, and then you say, all right, well, I guess I don't need to do my research because Dr. Oz has already done it for me, right? I mean, you have to do the meta research to find out whether or not Dr. Oz is a credible source, right? So, I mean, exactly. in, in a way, yeah. So You have to so do the, the meta that, research. You have to do the research yeah. one or two steps removed. In other words, you have to do the research at a level that you actually can, 
right? We we can all, like you mentioned Dr. Oz, you know, how do I know that Dr. Oz is a charlatan? Well, because if you do some research, it turns out there is a lot of literature on the claims that this guy has made, has made over the years. And you'll find plenty of articles from actual experts, from people with, you know, medical degrees and uh, who have done medical research who show you, you know, argue in detail why he's wrong about this or that or the other. So it's not actually that difficult to, to figure out whether somebody is trying to sell you snake oil or not, but not on the basis of analyzing the snake oil itself because you don't have that kind of expertise. It's on the basis of one or two steps uh, removed. It, it's like the same criteria that we use when we buy a car. What, what are you going to do? You have to trust the car salesman, right? How do you do that? Well, because he has a track record and because you can tell certain things about the person, not necessarily about the car, not directly. You're not an engineer, so you're not going to do a lot about the car. You can do some research, meaning that what are you going to do? What are you going to compare reviews, for instance, of the car? Right. But reviews done by who? Presumably by people who actually know what they're talking about when they talk about cars. It would be a really bad idea to buy a car on the basis of Google reviews or Amazon rankings or something like that, because you have no idea who these people are. What, what is their, their degree of understanding of the issue? You're just trusting a bunch of random people for no particular reason. Well, so it seems like, at least in the area of science, it's actually gotten a lot easier to understand the world, not only because there's so much more knowledge out there, but, you know, you do have tools that, that enable you to evaluate the validity of a source and the credibility of, of someone's positions. But, you know, when we move into the world of philosophy, it seems that it's actually probably harder than, than it ever has been. If you're in, in the Middle Ages and you want to know, hey, what, you know, what should I do? You, you go to the priest. He says, do this. You're like, that's it. You're done. Like, you didn't have to do any more research. It's all laid out for you. And, and now, where's the guide? There's no consensus. There's no experts that have the kind of credibility that a well-qualified research scientist has when they're describing how the world works, right? There's no one that you can go to to tell you, you can't do research and say, well, this person actually is, provides better, you know, moral instruction than this other person, right? Because they, they got a degree from Harvard and, and this person doesn't, right? So when it comes to how to live, we're, we're kind of set adrift, aren't yeah. we? Yes and no. So there are two things here to, to distinguish. First of all, philosophy as a way of life is one thing. So as you just mentioned, you know, how, how should I live? And then philosophy as a technical field of expertise is another thing, right? So if you walk into any philosophy department these days, you're not going to find a lot of people that will tell you how to live your life. You're going to find a lot of people who are uh, expert in intricate questions of metaphysics or moral philosophy or epistemology or logic or, and so on and so forth. So those people are essentially equivalent to scientists. They, they have very narrow domains of expertise. They do scholarship on a very, very narrow kinds of question because that's the way modern academia works. If you want to make progress, you have to pick a small little sliver of things that nobody has done before and then focus on that. Now, so you don't want those people to tell you about philosophy as a way of life because that's not what they do. They're not experts in that. They are philosophers, but they're not experts in, in that particular area. So you need practical philosophy. You need to turn to practical philosophy. 
And there, there are experts. It's just that there is no single way, good way to live your life. Therefore, you're always going to have choices. So what an expert can do is to provide you with options and say, okay, so if your question is how to live a good life, how to, as a human being, how to figure out, you know, the best way to spend your life, how to figure out your priorities and things like that, there are a number of options. And I, as an expert, can present you with those options and can walk you through those options. But I can't tell you which one you should choose because they are about equivalent, meaning that there are different paths to living a good life. For instance, I could present you with you know, the basics of Buddhism, the basics of Stoicism, the basics of Taoism, the basics of Epicureanism, and then say, look, these are these options. This is why these people came up with these options. This, this is what might or might not work. And then it's up to you to say, oh, this one actually, this thing actually resonates with me, or no, this doesn't seem to do it for me, right? So unlike in science, where ideally there is one and only one correct answer to the question, to whatever the question is, Right. If I'm interested in, for instance, um, the origin of life, presumably there is one answer to how life originated on Earth three and a half billion years ago. Whether we know it, we figure it out or not, it's a different issue. But there is one answer. If I am a physicist, there is one answer to whether string theory is correct or not. It either is or it isn't. It's either the world works that way or it doesn't. So in that sense, of course, you're going to find that science eventually settles on a consensus in any particular area because there is going to be one answer to that particular question. But in philosophy, usually it doesn't work that way. If you ask yourself, for instance, well, what's a, a good framework for moral philosophy? Well, you have at least three big ones. One we talked about briefly before, utilitarianism. Another one I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, deontology, that is rule-based or, or duty-based kind of. And then a third one is called virtue ethics, which is uh, the kind of approach that the Greeks and Romans especially developed, although Confucianism is also kind of virtue ethics. Now, if you were to ask me, well, but which one is true, right? I would say that's the wrong question. It isn't a question of being true. It's a question of being coherent, internally coherent. So whether, you know, are there problems, are there tensions within each one of these approaches, or do they actually work internally fairly well? And are they useful? Are they useful to society or are they useful to, to individuals? Those are the pertinent questions, not whether they're true or not, because it, I, I wouldn't even know what that means, right? Is, is virtue ethics true? Well, I don't know. It, it may be useful or not useful to you. It may be useful or not useful to other people, but whether it's true or not, it's really not actually the question, which is why in philosophy you tend to have always more than one viable answer to the question, but never that many. I mean, you mentioned it one few minutes ago, you know, this issue, this perception that a lot of people have that, you know, philosophers always disagree about everything. And in fact, even some philosophers will tell you that if you have 10 philosophers in a, in a room, you will have 11 opinions about what's going on and, and, and what's important. But that's actually empirically not true. We now actually have data. We have at least two surveys that have been published over the last 10 years about what professional philosophers think about all sorts of philosophical questions, such as issues in epistemology, metaphysics, moral philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that either that often there is a consensus, actually, there is only you know one majority view, and then maybe there is a very a minoritarian view, but that's a bit 
pretty much it. Or there are two or three major views, and that's it, which is exactly what I would expect in philosophy. As I said, it, you're never going to find a single answer because this is, a, this is not a philosophical question. They're not factual questions. They're not empirical questions, right? So they don't admit of a single answer. But, but you won't find many answers. It's simply not true that you got 10 philosophers in level opinions. It's, it's just, this is empirically not the case. Yeah, but I think you're pointing out that a lot of people particularly young people, I think, are disinclined to judge too harshly other people and their, their choices. But they're also maybe disinclined to judge their own choices too harshly, right? So they themselves are engaged in an effort to kind of discover what their preferences actually are, right? And, and to somehow realize those preferences. So, you know, and, and I particularly, I think that there's been studies that show that people who study economics and people who, who study, you know, evolutionary biology and psychology, you know, maybe even more inclined to allow their discovery to be influenced by how they interpret human behavior. So do you think that the, the desire to actually consciously choose how to live is, is a project that's, that's rarely undertaken in any kind of conscious way by most people? Yes, I think it is rarely undertaken, but I think that's unfortunate because, you know, when people, often I hear things like, oh, I don't need a philosophy of life. Well, first of all, yes, you do. And second of all, more importantly, you have it, whether you realize it or not. Uh, a philosophy of life is reflected in the kind of choices you make. It's not, you know, when people th think about philosophy, they think about some kind of really complex, abstract, you know, process of thinking. But the choices you make on a day-to-day -day basis, your priorities in life, et cetera, et cetera, will be evident to a uh, psychologist or to a behavioral ecologist just by observing, or up to an economist, uh, just by observing what you do, right? And those, those choices will reflect an underlying set of values and priorities, which is what I would call a philosophy of life. Now, so, and, and everyone has it. And most of the times we simply inherit this from our family and our social environment, right? If you, especially if you grow up in a in a religious household of some sort, then you know religions are, simple, are in yet another kind of philosophies of life. I don't think there is much of a difference between a philosophy of life and a religion, except of course for the fact that religions also have usually, often, not always, often have these metaphysical view of a particular entity that created the universe, et cetera, et cetera. But they are a philosophy of life. If you think about Christianity, for instance, I grew up a uh, Catholic in Rome, in Italy, and Christianity has a metaphysics, which means an account of how the world works, right? It was created by God and God is all powerful, et cetera, et cetera. It has an ethics, meaning a account of how you should behave in the world, the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Jesus, etc. And it has a set of practices, that is, things that help behavior or, or, or activities that help people be a Christian. For instance, praying, reading scriptures, going to church, listening to sermons, etc., etc. Now, take a, a philosophy instead of religion. Let's say Stoicism. Well, Stoicism has a metaphysics because the Stoics uh, have an idea of how the world works. For the for the ancient Stoics, the world is a living organism endowed with uh, sentience and the ability to act rationally. They have an ethics, 
because they follow the four cardinal virtues in their behavior, you know, practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. They think that pro-social behavior, you know, be cooperative behavior with other people is the most important thing you can do, etc., etc. That's an ethics. And third, they have practices. They have different kinds of meditations. They have uh, fasting exercises. They have this. So it's exactly the same thing. So religions and philosophies of life are essentially two versions of the same thing. Now, since the overwhelming majority of people on the planet is religious, belongs to one religion, at least formally, to one religion or, or another, that means that the overwhelming majority of people on the planet actually does follow a philosophy of life. Right? And they are taught this philosophy of life when they're kids. So my suggestion is simply that from time to time, it might be worth stepping back and asking yourself whether that philosophy is actually good for you, whether you actually agree with the tenets of that philosophy, or maybe it's, it's time to look somewhere else and you know live your life in a different way. After all, it is your life, and you're the one that has to make those, those decisions. So there certainly is a need for philosophy of life. We cannot do without a philosophy of life. And we do have one, usually built in because of our family or cultural environments. So given those two things, from time to time examining it, it's a good idea. You might examine and say, hey, you know what? That's that's good enough for me. You you might, you know, spend some time examining your why you're a Buddhist or a Christian or, or a Stoic and say, hey, this is this is actually good. I'm I'm fine with that. But considering that it literally permeates everything that you do in your life because it sets your priorities, it sets your values and everything. It might be a good idea from time to time to, to examine it. Why? Because you don't want to get to the end of your life and realize that you mislived. That you, that you look back and you say, oh crap, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I should have done something different. I should have behaved in a different way. I should have adopted a different kinds of set of values. So it's, it's never too late until you're on your deathbed to examine your philosophy of life. Well, you know, we talked about how biologists, economists, other people who, who study humans and, and their behavior and their biology will have an implied philosophy. Oftentimes they don't state it, but they'll often generate something that looks like, like a philosophy with normative elements that, that they're not super conscious of how they got to. But I guess the flip side is that you've got all sorts of people with various philosophies of life that have a theory of, of human nature that's implied and, and it's not explicit. And I think all the philosophies that you mentioned, the religions you mentioned, they all do have a coherent view of, of human nature. And I learned in, in school when I studied philosophy that every philosophy must have some view of human nature. But this idea of human nature, it's kind of an unfashionable term in, in the humanities. So, you know, is it possible to have a, a, a philosophy of, of life without an understanding of of how humans actually live and how they behave and how, how they're constructed and what their inclinations are and, and how those inclinations get generated? No, I don't think it is. And you're, you're right that human nature is a concept that is seen from, uh, with some distrust these days in the, in the humanities, even to some extent in the sciences themselves, but, but certainly in the humanities. And I don't understand why. I mean, I guess I understand. I, mean, I it, think but I, I think it's it's probably that the the scientists fall too easily into the naturalistic fallacy, correct. and the, the humanities people are you know super 
paranoid about falling right. into some right. kind of naturalistic fallacy, maybe. Yeah, there is there is a tendency from many people in the humanities to want to think that human beings are blank slates, that, that we, we are capable of doing anything that we want, no matter what, we have no constraints. But that's obviously not true. <laughs> we have physical constraints, we have psychological constraints, we have all sorts of, of things that we can we cannot do. And not only that, but we also have that's the sort of the negative aspect of human nature, right? I cannot fly of my own on my own power for that thing. That's an obvious example of something physically that my human nature doesn't allow me to do. I can also not react in certain ways or avoid to react in certain ways to certain situations because this is there is something about human psychology that uh, that brings me to react in in certain ways. You know, we come with an emotional apparatus in our brain that reacts in certain in certain way we can't do without it in fact if you do without it you become a psychopath and that's not necessarily a good idea a good thing so there's also very positive aspects of human nature meaning that human nature doesn't just tell an understanding of human nature doesn't just tell you what you cannot do it also tells you what you want to do what's important for you what, what is what is necessary for you to do right so for instance at a very minimum we should agree that human beings want and need shelter, protection from violence, access to food and water, that sort of stuff, right? Those things are basic needs of human beings. But there's also a lot of other things. Once that those needs are, are satisfied, those needs by them, the satisfaction of those needs by itself is not enough to provide us with a, a human life that is rich and, you know, flourishing and, and really truly worth living. So, what else do we need? Well, that depends on your understanding of, of human nature. And different philosophies understand human nature differently. For a Buddhist, for instance, the fundamental thing about human nature is that we are characterized by a rapacious ego that is the source of suffering in the world. That's a very specific theory of human nature, right? Other philosophies don't agree with that. They, they reject that notion. The Stoics, for instance, think that the fundamental thing about human nature is that we're capable of reason and that we are social, highly social, which means that for a Stoic, a good life is a life in which you improve society and you try to improve society through your ability to, to solve problems, you know, to reason through, your, through problems. If you're an Epicurean, the fundamental thing about human nature is that we seek pleasure and, and try to stay away from pain. And so for an Epicurean, that's what is important in life, and that's, that's how you construct your philosophy. Now, to some extent, of course, our understanding of human nature has to be informed by empirical evidence. You can't just sit there and say, oh, well, I think that humans are like this and then make up your story uh, about it. That has to be tethered to empirical reality. If you propose a theory of human nature or a conception of human nature from a philosophical standpoint that doesn't actually go with the empirical reality on the ground, then you're not doing anything useful. But the empirical realities by themselves do not, once again, now we go back to, the, to how we started this conversation, the empirical reality by themselves don't tell you what kind of philosophy you should necessarily follow. For instance, I think that both the Stoics, the Stoics, the Buddhists, and the Epicureans all had a point. It is true that a lot of human suffering comes from what the Buddhists call the rapacious ego, this, this notion that we always want things and we, we want to control things. That's, that's certainly true. It is also true, however, like the Epicureans say, that a fundamental aspect of human, human nature is that we seek pleasure and stay away from pain. That's true since we're 
you know, infants. But it's also true, like the Stoics say, that we're capable of reason to a level, to a degree that is far higher, more complex than any other living species on Earth. And we, it is also true, as the Stoics say, that we are eminently social animals, highly social animals. Now, if all of those things are true, then then you have to say, yeah, but which ones are more? Which one is more important, or which one should I, you know, consider my my uh, basic notion about how that shapes how to live my life. Well, that's where the philosophy comes in. Now you want to have arguments about why mm -hmm. one might be more important or or a better way of, of, of doing things. But they all have something that is empirically correct, that it's empirically true. It's not they're not just made up out of out of thin air. And when I was younger, I was accused of being a cafeteria Catholic. And, and I think <laughs> uh, you used the, the cafeteria metaphor in the book about how there's no way to be a pure deontologist. There's no way to be a pure utilitarian. There's no way to be a pure virtue ethics person. You have to kind of blend them. There's going to be there's going to be trade-offs. There's there's some tragic choices you have to make. You can't you know live up to the ideals of all three. But but I think that in you know you say that the, a critical prerequisite for living a stoic life is to really understand the the boundary between what you can change and what you can't change. And, and to me, this is the hardest part. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to study motivation, to understand desire, to understand biology and, and psychology, and, and to really figure out what can be changed, not just about the world, but what can be changed about yourself. There doesn't seem to be, it, this, if this were so easy, I mean, I always wonder if I could, if I could answer that question, the rest would be the easy part. Like, oh, now I know I can change this. Boom. Use willpower, go change it end of story. Like a lot of people argue that the willpower is the hardest part. I actually think it's knowing whether or not that's actually going to work, whether or not that's actually going to succeed. Do you think that all of this research into biology and psychology that we're doing is actually enabling us to answer this question better than say our, you know, ancestors 2,400 years ago, or is it just as difficult now to, to figure out what we can and cannot change? Uh, again, I'm I want I'm going to say yes and no. You know, both both to some extent. Yes, definitely, research does help. Of of course, you, the more you understand about a particular problem or system or whatever it is you're concerned with, the more you have a sense of the limits of your agency, what what it is that you can actually do or not or not do. However, I do think that the Stoics, in particular, really did get something fundamentally right about what is sometimes referred to as the dichotomy of control, this notion that some things are up to me and other things are not up to me. The, the dichotomy of control actually shows up in different traditions. It's also a Buddhist concept, Judaic concept. It's a Christian concept as well. But I think the Stoics defined it pretty well, and they find it in a way that has withstood the test of time. For a Stoic, essentially, the number of things that are really up to me is very limited. And it comes down pretty much to my judgments, my considered judgments, my endorsed values, and my decisions to act or not to act. That's it. Nothing else. In other words, it's all internal. Because if you think about it, these three things that I just mentioned, they're all actually types of judgments. They're all my decisions to, to try to do something or not to do something. The notion, therefore, is that the judgments are up to you. The outcomes are not. So it is my judgment that it would be a good idea to do to try to do X, but whether I succeed in doing X or not doesn't depend just on me. It depends on other 
on other factors, and some of those factors are outside of my control. Let me give you a specific example. Uh, let's say I'm going for a job interview. What is after, under my control and what is not under my control there? Well, I control things like preparing as best as I can for the interview. That's my decision to do so. Putting together the best resume possible for the interview. That's my decision to do so. Uh, stay focused during the interview itself. Not going out for drinking with my buddies during the night before the interview because that's going to interfere with my sleeping patterns, etc., etc. All of those are decisions that I make about what to do and what not to do. What is not under my control, of course, is whether I actually get the job or not because that depends on the competition, which I don't control. It depends on the interviewer, which I don't control. It depends on the actual needs of the company or the, or the employer, which I don't control. Uh, all of that stuff I actually don't control. So there's this really nice distinction here between, on the one hand, my own decisions and my own judgments are definitely up to me. They may be influenced by other people, but ultimately the buck stops with me. I am the one that decides whether to try to do something or not. I'm the one that decides whether this is a good thing to do or not. Outcomes, on the other hand, I might be able to influence the outcomes. Of course, if I do a good job interview, the chances that I get the job are higher, right? But I don't decide those outcomes because they depend on other factors. And once you understand and internalize that, your life changes dramatically because all of a sudden you're focusing only on the first bit, what's up to you, your decisions and your judgments. And you develop an attitude of equanimity or acceptance toward the outcomes toward the things you don't control. You tell yourself going into the interview, look, I've done everything I could. I made my decisions. At this point, either I get the job or I don't. And if I do, great. If I don't, too bad. And you know, there, there will be other opportunities. There will be other, other ways of you know, navigating the, the world. So I mean, the Stoics really got this pretty much right. And even though modern science certainly provides us with a much richer understanding of causal connections between things of what determines outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. It still remains the case that outcomes are not up to me and decisions are up to me. Well, some people would argue that stoicism is making a comeback. And I think, you know, you've played some role in that. It's not just people reading Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, although there's probably a lot more of that going on right now. Certainly in, even in Silicon Valley, you hear people claiming to be be Stoics. But, but I mean, there's other things that we could call Stoicism, like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It appears in, in a variety of guises, right, it, with it, within the culture. Why do you think it is? I mean, if indeed, I don't, I don't know whether we could, I don't know, we don't have data that tells you, right, you know, the ups and downs of, of different schools of thought, right, philosophical thought. But if it is on the rise, if people are starting to become more attracted to the to, the stoic view of things what accounts for that is is it because you know we're going through something like a, like a hellenistic period right now or late roman empire period how would you account for the attraction that so many people have towards stoic ideas now well, for one thing, we do have actually some empirical information. I mean, you can do that Stoicism is becoming more popular, or, or especially over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, you can just do a, a number of things. You can check uh, Google Ngram and see how many times the word Stoic comes up in, the, in books 
and magazines and things like that. And that has definitely gone up more than other similar philosophies. You can also just look at the number of books that are coming out, uh, that have been coming out on Stoicism. There are certainly far more books on Stoicism than, let's say, on Epicureanism or Aristotle or whatever, or, or a bunch of other philosophies. Not as many as there are Buddhism, but Buddhism has been established for a long time as a public interest philosophy. As to why this is happening, yes, to some extent, we are going through something like the Hellenistic period. The Hellenistic period was a period of major turmoil where empires were collapsing and, and emerging out of nowhere and people felt like things were out of control and they couldn't do anything about it. And typically, under those conditions, people turned to philosophy or religion, which, as I said earlier, they're essentially the same thing because they need a sense of security, a sense of some kind of anchor, a sense of, of how to manage uh, things. That's why the Hellenistic philosophies flourished during that period, which we're talking about the end of the first century before the current era and the second century of the current era, give or take. So yeah, I think we're going through something like this today. I mean, we have, we're ongoing through a pandemic, we're facing the possibility of environmental collapse. We've seen major economic and political upheavals over the last few decades. So yeah, I think that the, all, the, all the boxes do, do check. So that's certainly one, one reason. The other one, of course, is the rise of social media. Once it a good idea or a bad idea, unfortunately, gets a foothold, uh, then, then it really spreads much more fast these days on social media than it, than it would have 20 or 30 years ago. So you might ask, why did Stoicism not become popular? 30 or 40 years ago. And I think that's because it was before the internet. It was once it, that enough people have started putting out these ideas, then they spread very rapidly. I mean, the, la the largest um, Facebook uh, group devoted to Stoicism counts about 100,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a significant, and it's not the only one either. Uh, there's several, several other ones. So, uh, so I think there is a combination of factors. Some of them are social factors. The additional factor probably is the crisis of mainstream religions. We have data over the last 10 to 20 years at least showing that uh, a lot of people uh, start disenfranchising themselves from, you know, detaching themselves from mainstream religions. A lot of people now in, in the West consider themselves as non-affiliated with any, any major religion. And that doesn't mean, however, that they don't need some kind of anchor, they don't need some kind of framework, some kind of reference to live their life. And so um, they look for alternatives. And one of the alternatives is, uh, is stoicism. So. so do you think that we're doing an adequate job of teaching philosophy in schools? I mean, there's no shortage of exposure to biology, but in law schools and in business schools, engineering schools, we have a one-unit course on, on ethics where students are exposed to deontological views and utilitarian views and maybe a tiny bit of virtue ethics, but it's kind of an add-on. It's not, if we have kind of normative principles, if we have discussions about causal inference, they're, they're oftentimes kind of added on. Do we need to rethink how we do education? You, you, you asked in the book if, if virtue could be taught, and I think you're, you're optimistic about that, but where should it be taught? A lot of people don't go to church anymore. There's no such thing as a, you know, a, a church of philosophy where you can go down on Sunday morning and, and hang out with your stoicism guru and, and get what you need. So how, do, how should we incorporate this 
in our lives institutionally? I think it should be taught at all levels, beginning at home, actually, beginning with the family, because that's where we get the basics of moral uh, decision-making when we're very young. And you know, moral education should start at home, and it's always started at home since the Greeks and the Romans, and, and uh, I think we should be paying more attention at that level. In terms of institutionally, I think that uh, it's never too early, but certainly at least at the level of junior high school, students are sophisticated enough to be exposed to basic ideas in philosophy, especially moral philosophy, and they should. I don't see that happening anytime soon, particularly in this country, because there is a significant degree of anti-intellectualism in the first place. So so I don't see it happening, but I think it should, and definitely before the college level. College level is already too late. You can sort of fine-tune things at the college level, but if people haven't sort of grown up used to the notion that there are better ways of thinking and worse ways of thinking and then that the, the, there is such a thing as moral thinking uh, in the first place, then they're not going to get much out of a single course in, in, in ethics. So yes, the answer is we're doing a really bad job at teaching philosophy in general, in particular ethics. Yeah. Right. And you, you recommend some, some exercises that people can engage in, kind of mental first aid kit, some things that they, people can do to try to practice their virtues. And uh, so I highly recommend that you check that out. But, but I guess the last question is the vision of the stoic life. It, it's one that's, it's a hard sell for some people, right? So you describe being a dog chained to a cart. I mean, that's, that's kind of grim, right? I mean, don't, I don't people know. Have you ever had a dog? I mean, dogs are pretty happy <laughs> kind of animals, you know? <laughs> right. But you know, Camus, Camus would say that, you know, every now and then the dog has to tear at the chain and bite the cart, even though it's completely futile is, right. is there do you ever tempted to do that well so the the metaphor of the of the dog and the cart actually is a, goes back to chrysippus who was uh, one of the early stoics and and basically he said look uh l- the universe is the cart and you're the dog and it's, you're chained to the to the cart and when the universe decides to move one way or the other you really don't have a choice you have to go along so your only two choices are either you go along you know happily and sauntering and you know using the little bit of leash that you have to explore and have fun or you can drag yourself on the pavement and bruise yourself and have a horrible experience but the universe will move in that direction no matter what the hell you do right now somebody might think that's grim i think that's just reality reality isn't grim or or happy it is what it is what makes it grim or happy is your attitude toward reality i mean that actually is a fundamental teaching of Stoicism that, again, I do think it should be taken on board more widely. The Stoics think that the world is what it is. It's not like, you know, that you don't really have control over, you know, can't, you can't change the laws of nature. You can't change a lot of things in the world. What you can change is your attitude toward things, is your, your the way you think about it. And so if the cart moves, you can say to yourself either, oh, damn, the cart is moving. I am going to stay here no matter what and fail. Or you can say, oh, all right, the cart is moving. Let's, let's see where we're going. Let's, let's enjoy, enjoy the ride, right? That's, that's entirely up to you. Now, that said, however, let me make one big caveat because sometimes Stoicism is interpreted as a quietist philosophy as in, you know, or you can't do anything about anything basically it's all in your mind it's all about your attitude that's not true as i mentioned a minute ago the dichotomy of control tells you that you don't ultimately control outcomes 
but that doesn't mean you cannot influence them, right? So one of the nice Stoic metaphors actually come out of Cicero, who was not a Stoic, but was very sympathetic to uh, Stoic philosophy in uh, a book called On the Ends of Good and Evil, which is a great title. He presents this metaphor of the archer, and he says, you know, if you are an archer, you're trying to hit an enemy soldier. You know, what do you do? What is up to you and what is not up to you? Well, what is up to you is the choice of the bow and arrow, the care of the bow and arrow, the, uh, you know, practicing archery before the battle starts, the focus when you're about to let the arrow go, and the choice at the moment and the aim when you let it go. After that, you don't control anything. Even the best shot could be diverted by the fact that there is a gust of wind that all of a sudden ruins everything. Or the enemy soldier turns around at the last moment, sees you, and and, and it ducks, and that's it at the end of the story. So it's still the, the notion of a dichotomy of control. I, I control what is up to me. I control my decisions, but I do not control the outcomes. But obviously, I do want to hit the enemy soldier, right? That's the whole point of shooting the arrow in the first place. So it's not like I'm not trying to do something. I am trying to achieve a particular result, but I am conscious of the fact that that result may not, that outcome might not actually take place because it's not entirely up to me. I influence it, but I don't determine it. Massimo, I've interviewed about 200 people so far this this, this past year, and um, about 98% of them have mentioned Aristotle, but you're the first to have a book with Aristotle in the title. So <laughs> answers for, for Aristotle, if he asks, uh, how to be a stoic nonsense on stilts. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.